This morning, I think we'll get into the lesson. We're going to begin as we travel through this. We are allowing the Holy Spirit to give us the identity of this man named Jesus of Nazareth. And you may say, well, I already know who he is. Well, all of us probably know something about Jesus, and we know the basics. But what we need to have, what I need to have, what each of us need to have, is an enlarged understanding, a bigger understanding, a deeper understanding, a more biblically anchored and informed understanding. So when we think of this man, Jesus, what happens typically with believers is this. We think of him within an earthly context, the man who walked around, who did wonderful, lovely things, who said some wonderful things and very harsh things, who was amazing in some of the miracles that he produced, et cetera, et cetera. And that is good, but it's only good as it were if we were in the first grade having just learned our ABCs. That's good. But you see, we must progress past our ABCs. We must progress. Because what we need to have is not a picture of Jesus in an earthly context, you know, the man walking the dusty roads. That's essential initially, but that essential initial fundamental understanding must, by the revelation of the Holy Spirit through the Scriptures, become this man must become, we, we must have a cosmic understanding of this man. Do you understand? A cosmic understanding of who he is in the mind of God and who he is as to the eternal purposes of God. Who he is today and who he is forevermore. Because who he was on earth was just God's work of bringing us into the fullness of who he is essentially in his being as the eternal son of God. Okay. And so as we travel through this, we're going to begin to talk about some Greek words. Why? Because there is revelation here and understanding here and misunderstanding here that we need to have clarified in order to, and as the Holy Spirit develops us and matures our understanding of who Jesus is, but not only that, but clarifies our place in Christ, the significance not only of Christ, but also the significance of each believer in Christ. Amen? So we continue in this. We're in lesson four. So this morning, before we look at some of the Old Testament evidence of the incarnation of the Son of God, I want to remind us about what is called the hypostatic union. Now, remember, everything we say about who Jesus is, what he has done, must be 
anchored in and demonstrated in the pages of the Old Testament. There's nothing in the New Testament that had not been referred to, hinted at, foreshadowed in the old. Do you understand that? There's nothing, if, if you would, new in the New Testament. Everything in the New Testament is in seed form in the old. In front of our house, some of you have been to my house, there is a gigantic oak tree, which is about, what, 150, 200 years old. The branches extend at least into where the streetcar tracks are. They extend way out there to the streetcar tracks. Every leaf, every branch, every aspect of that tree is but the manifestation and the growth and the development of what was in the original acorn. That's the Old Testament. The acorn is in the Old Testament and a couple of sprouts are coming up. In the New Testament, we see this tree, what? In full blossom, amen? Does that help you to see the significance of the Old Testament? So this morning, I want to remind us again about the hypostatic union. Hypostatic union, the Son of God assumes a real human body, a real human nature, and acts in and through the nature of a man, the Son of Man. In the hypostatic union, the eternal Son of God takes to himself a human body with a human nature so that everything that the Son does as a man, he is doing in and through the nature of the man, Jesus. Do we get that? All right. So you have then the nature of the Son the divine nature, and you have the human nature coming together, not being interfused, but each one distinct, but working together in absolute comprehensive unity so that the will of this man is one will, the divine will and the human will working in complete agreement. Everything the Son accomplished he did or accomplished as a man. Why? In order to fulfill all righteousness in his life and death. Everything the Son of God accomplished as the Son of Man. Remember, the Son of God divinity, the Son of God in humanity. We've talked about the twin identity of Jesus that is absolutely necessary. That he must be the Son of God fully. He must be the Son of Man fully in order for him to accomplish the eternal purpose of God. To diminish either side is not to accomplish the purpose of God. And so everything the Son of God in this man, as this man, as the Son of Man, is for the purpose of fulfilling all righteousness. So, And I'm going to be sticking to my notes, I think, a little more closely today than I sometimes do. This means that the Father's will was accomplished by the will of the Son through the nature of of the man Jesus Christ. In one in this respect, Jesus had a divine will and a human will. Are we with me? 
Are we with me? He had both wills together. This means that the two wills function in perfect simultaneous unity so that the Father's one will and Jesus' will were one will. So that the Father's will was the Son's will and was the Son of Man's will. So we're talking about one will functioning within a context of the incarnation by the Son of God as the Son of Man. Why do I say that? Because sometimes we get mixed up and we think, well, God had a will and this one had a will, whatever. God has but one will. So in this, this means, therefore, that all the Son did, all that the Son of God did, he did as Jesus of Nazareth, depending upon and submitting to the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. We had the Son of God taking to himself a human body and soul and nature and functioning within the context of that human body, soul, and nature as the Son, but within the context as a man. So that what he does as a man is the activity of the Son of God. And what the Son of God does in this man is the activity of a man. You got it? I know we, it's, it's, it, you know, yeah, yeah, we have it. Yeah, I, I understand a little bit about it. Remember what Jesus said in John five nineteen. This is the Son of God speaking in and through the Son of Man. This is the Son of God speaking in and through this man, Jesus. He says this, the Son of the Son, that means the Son of God, can do nothing of himself. Unless he does some, unless it is something he sees the father doing for whatever the father does, the son does in like manner. What does it mean when Jesus says the son? And when he says the son, he means the son of God as the son of man. He means the activity of the son of God operating in him as the son of man and in and through the nature and the will of the son of man. He says, I can't do anything on my own accord. What does that mean? You can't do anything on your own accord. It means this, he can do nothing as to the Father's purpose. He can do nothing in fulfillment of the Father's will. He can do nothing in relation to walking with God as God, as a man. On his own accord, independent of God. I mean, how many of us have heard this? God has given you a good mind, and you are supposed to use it. How many have heard that? So based on that, what Christians think is this, that God has given me, Joe, a mind. I'm not talking about me personally. You understand that, of course. This is a generic comment. God has given me a good mind, you see what I mean? And as such, God expects me to make decisions and to think about things because he's given me the capability of deciding and thinking, correct? And so we're supposed to be that way. We're supposed to live that way. That's not the purpose of God in my mind. Jesus had a perfect mind. And yet here's a man, Chris, who says, I don't think anything on my own independent from the Holy Spirit. Nothing. 
I don't make any decision on my own, independent of the Holy Spirit. What I hear from God, I think. What I hear from God, I do. Every thought, every action, everything about me comes from God by the Holy Spirit. So what is our mind is supposed to be. Our minds, Jesus' mind, let's say it this way, perfect mind, it is the perfect receptacle, if you would, of the presence and word and will of God the Father by the Holy Spirit for him to perfectly receive and understand and obey what the Holy Spirit pours into his mind. He has not been given a perfect mind in order to make perfect decisions on his own. He is given a perfect mind so that under the power of the Spirit, he can perfectly obey and walk in that which is given to him by God. Amen? So that means this. We are not called to make independent decisions and to decide for ourselves. We are here depending on what God wants us to be, what God wants to do in us. Amen? Now, so let's look at some of the claims that are uh, in the Old Testament. Why must we search the Old Testament? I've said this very quickly. Both testaments together are the one word of God. Now, can we get that? I know we talk about the Old Testament, the New Testament, and this, and that. No, we must understand both testaments together are the word of God. You drop one or denigrate or diminish the significance of one, you lose the effect of the other. Both together are the word of God. Everything in the new, that the new claims about the person and work of Jesus, as I said, must be found either implicitly by hints or explicitly very clearly revealed in the pages of the Old Testament. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 24, 27. After the crucifixion uh, in Luke 24, two disciples are leaving Jerusalem. They're going back to Emmaus. They're downtrodden. They're what up because Jesus has been crucified. Jesus appears before them and say, hey, where y'all going? Well, we're going back home. Well, what's going on? Well, haven't you heard about these things that have been going on in Jerusalem? Jesus said, what things? Now, why did he say what things? He didn't know. How many of you have ever caught your children doing something and you said this? What were you doing? Come on. How many of you done that? Was it because you didn't know? Daddy, you knew. What were you doing? Getting them to do what? You were drawing out of your children the truth, weren't you? This is what Jesus is doing. I've actually heard a criticism. You say, Jesus didn't know. Oh, what are you kidding? And he says, you know, we were hoping that Jesus, this man, was the hope of Israel. And it says in verse 27, and beginning with what? Do you see it? Is it, in your, is it printed there? Beginning where? With Moses. That's the five books. And traveling all the way through the scriptures, he opened to them the revelation about himself. And then in verse 44, it gives more, more detail again. He pointed to the Old Testament. So let's begin our search with one of the best known New Testament passages about the incarnation of the Son of God. In John 3.16, we read this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son stop there we're not going to go into any more detail for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son now for that to be true that statement must be verified in the pages of the old testament 
It's verified in the resurrection. But it was first proclaimed and promised in the pages of the Old Testament. Let's make sure we see our Bibles correctly. John 3.16 is not a new thought in the Bible. It is not a new revelation. It is a revelation that comes out of the Old Testament as a necessity of redeeming God's purpose in his people through the giving of his son. Amen. Amen. The necessity. Look how I put it. I did not put the necessity of us being saved. I will never put that first. That's man pleasing. Man preoccupied. The necessity of the son of God. The necessity of God's eternal purpose being fulfilled by this man as to our salvation. Do we get that? The purpose is about God. So that his purpose for creating us is fulfilled. Therefore the son comes. You see the, the primary purpose of the incarnation. The primary purpose of John 3.16. Is not to save us. It is to redeem God's purpose. Through our redemption. Can you say amen? God's purpose in our lives is always primarily about him. Can someone agree with me on this? God's purpose in our lives is always about who can? About God. It's always about God, Pat. Everything in my life is about, for, and from God primarily. So what God is doing in this class is about him. It's not about the teachers, not about the students. We are the secondary. So, what does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. Now, remember, we must look for evidence of the Old Testament. Now, let's look at this word. In this regard, the phrase only begotten son is one of the pieces of evidence. Are you following me this morning? It's a little more specific than what we typically do. The Greek word for only begotten is, is this in your notes? Monogeneus wesos. You see that funny word? Monogeneus wesos. That's the Greek. In the original Greek of the New Testament. The New Testament, as you know, was written in what they call koine or common everyday Greek language. And so when John wrote this and he put only begotten son, he wrote out the word monogeneus wesos. Weos, I'm sorry, weos. You got that? That's what is in the Greek. Now, if that is true, what John said, then that same meaning of monogeneus Weus must be found where? In the Old Testament. It must be found in the Old Testament. If it's not found in the Old Testament, it's not true. So let's look at it. The word monogeneus is of central importance. Weus is the word for son. So we'll talk about that next week. Word monogeneus is the central word here. 
This is significant. It's the same word that is used of Jesus in five other New Testament passages, and I just have a list of them there. So what is the significance of this term, monogeneus? The answer is how monogeneus is used in the Old Testament. Mono means one, unique, and only. That's what it means, one, only. The word geneus, you see the last part of a G-E-N-E-S? Mono means unique, one, only, mono. Geneus is a second part. It comes from the noun genos, G-E-N-O-S, which means of a kind or class. One of, one of a type of person, one kind of a person, one class of a person. That's what that word means. One unique class or kind of a person. Therefore, in John 3.16, Monogenes describes a unique, one-of-a-kind person, one-of-a-kind relationship. So what does John say? God, God the Father, so loved the world that he sent what? This one-of-a-kind person, this person who is in absolute, unique relationship with God to the world to save his people. For the fulfillment of his eternal purpose. Monogeneus, weos, one of a kind, one of a class of people. Monogeneus, weos says that Jesus is the unique, one of a kind son of God because he possesses the same essential nature of God. How many of you have children? Anybody? Everybody has children? Most, most of us do. How many of us know this, that when a woman conceives a child, that child is going to have the nature of the father? And anybody have a question with that? So you have a child. You don't say, what is it? Now, in some of our cases, Anna, they did say that. <laughs> what is it? Daniel, what is it? Is it a human or not? I know some of you looked at your children, you wonder that. Come on, come on. Some of you looked at your children, you wonder, <laughs> I don't know about that one. You see, the nature of the father is reproduced in the son or the daughter. Is, is, is this deep? Do we understand? So you have three lovelies here. You have Megan. No, no, I just put my hand on Edward's shoulder. You have Megan, you have what's his name? Edward, and you have Haddon. Now, their mama is here. These children were conceived by Ryan. They are of the same nature, substance, being as the mama, who is of the same substance, being as the mama mama. Is this deep? Do we understand that? But this man is of the same substance as his father. Totally unique. Because the father is divine. Therefore, this man is of the same substance of his father. 
do we see this? Monogenes Weos is saying that Jesus is of the same nature of his father. Are we following me? Are we following me on this? That's what Monogenes is saying. That's what John 3.16 is saying to us. John 1, 17 and 18. Well, first of all, go back. Why? Why Monogenes Weos? Because Jesus possesses the same essential nature as God the Father. Therefore, in John 1, 17 and 18, we see this. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Why? No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God. Now, it's interesting. When you go into the Greek, it says the only begotten God. Monogenes Theos is in the Greek. Who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him or he has revealed him. The only one who can actually, accurately, and clearly explain God is the one who is of the same nature of God. If Jesus is of a different nature than divine in himself, as God is divine, then we're not getting the exact revelation of who God the Father is. We're getting an abridged, a, 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 a what, what word we want, smaller revelation than who God is. The only one who can reveal the Father by nature is the son of the Father or the daughter. The son speaking generically, okay? We'll give us a little wisdom here. So Jesus is of the same nature of the Father. Why? Because he is here to reveal the Father and to be the Father's perfect agent in fulfilling the Father's will. So where do we find this term used in the Old Testament? One of a kind. One of a kind. You see, it doesn't mean Jesus was created. Well, that's what it means, begotten. No, the word begotten is from the word genos, not G-E-N-E-S, to beget or to produce. So where do we see this? Well, let's turn to Genesis 22. You remember Genesis? Abraham is called what? to leave the Ur of the Chaldees in chapter 12 and go to a land. I'm going to show you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless all the nations of the world through you and so on. We know that. So Abraham and Sarah are in this foreign land for years, and they ain't got no children. So what is Sarah's recommendation in chapter 16? Take my handmaiden, whose name is Hagar, and have a child through Hagar. Now, this is a common practice even today in these lands. If you can't have a child through your wife, you have a child through a surrogate, and that child becomes your child. It becomes Abraham's son because Abraham is the daddy. But you see, what the Lord said is, you're going to have a son. Abraham's going to be the daddy. But Sarah is going to be the mama. And so, you see... Wendy, you can step in and maybe you can represent the mama and have this child called Hagar, but you're not the mama. Even though the culture says you're the mama, you are not the mama. And so they have Hagar. Now, years later, Sarah conceives and bears a son. What is his name? Isaac. Isaac. Now, how many sons now does Abraham have? Two. What are they? What's, the, what's Hagar's son's name? Ishmael. And Isaac, 
Both of these are sons of Abraham. Now, do you see that? Both of them are sons of Abraham. But they're sons by a different mama. And God said the promise comes through the mama's son. Right, Gordon? Remember that. And so, years later, Isaac is probably 18, 20 years old. He's not a little 12-year-old boy. He's about 20 years old. And the Lord appears to his father, Abraham, and he says, Abraham. Yes? Do you have it in your, your Bible? Take your what? Come on. What, what does it say? Let's read it. And he says, here I am. He says, take your what? Son. Oh, okay. Which one? That's the first question. Which one? Okay, go to the next one. Your only son. Oh, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Now, we know God is old. Come on, let's face it. Let me tell you how old God is. He's older than I am. Oh, my God, God is old. Your only son. Well, what do you mean your only son? Stephen, I have two sons. Which one? Your only son. So Abraham is genuinely confused. I I see that. Right? You see that, Isaac? Abraham is genuinely confused. Which one? What does he say next? What? Come on, come on. You can speak the son what? Whom you love. This is the third description. Take your son, your only son, the son whom you love. Well, I love both my boys. Then the fourth descriptive nails it. Who? Isaac. And then when you read in, I think it's verse 22, Abraham is going to sacrifice who? But what word does it use there? It says this. And the Lord, I'm sorry, verse 12. And he says, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. What is going on here? The Old Testament was written originally in what language? Y'all can respond. Hebrew. During the Babylonian captivity, remember the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem in 586. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? You may have seen the movie at least. And he took off all these people out of Israel, Jerusalem, destroyed the temple and so on. So they're living for 70 years in captivity. And in captivity, they have their Jewish scriptures. 70 years. The difficulty is that a lot of the children are learning other languages, especially Greek. So in order to make sure that all the kids understand the scriptures correctly, what do we need to do? We need to change it from the Hebrew to the Greek. How many of you here are Catholic? Come on. How many of you were Catholic? Do you remember when the, the uh, what do you call it, the mass went from Latin to English? Some of you are old enough to remember that. Why? So you could understand what was being said. 
and so they put it in the Greek. That's called the Septuagint. It's about 250 B.C., somewhere around there, you know, the 3rd century. Septuagint means 70. It was translated by 70 or 72 scribes, priests, you know, whatever. And so they took the Hebrew and they put it into the Greek language. Now, nobody was more careful about the language than these Jews, believe me. And so if you were to turn in the Septuagint to this very passage, the word only is monogenes. That's how they translated it into the Greek, monogenes. I may have it from the, uh, yeah, the Hebrew is yahid. It's translated monogenes. It means one of a kind. So the word that John uses in 3.16 is the same word that God is using where? In chapter 22, in verses 1 and 2 there, and then also in verse 12, the same. Now, what's wrong with only begotten in the natural sense? Isaac was not the only child by natural birth. God was not talking about that which is birth naturally. He is talking about that which is according to his eternal plan, that this son Isaac, certainly at this point we're talking about a human being, but the emphasis is not his natural birth. The emphasis is who he is in relation to God. He is one of a kind, unique person in God. Why? Because he will be the next in line about through whom the Messiah will come. So one of a kind doesn't mean in this context a birth son. It means a relationship, a unique one of a kind relationship. Do we see that? Are you with me on this? This is important because as we progress through this, we're going to see that one of a kind and other words begin to come together to paint the picture of Jesus as absolutely the unique Son of God like no other creature or nature or creation in all the universe. That's who this one is. We're going to go through it slowly, but we want to go through it carefully so we have a better understanding and bring all the threads together in a way that we have a tapestry that shows us who this man is. So in each of these passages, the Hebrew and in the Greek, the same word is used. So, however, what is the, the problem is that Isaac is not Abraham's only son, Ishmael is. And so what we'll do next week, we'll continue to travel through this and look at the use of mono, monogenes, weos, and with other words, and see, again, how this one whom John says is the only begotten son of God, what he means by that and how that is substantiated or foreshadowed or hinted at in, in the Old Testament. Amen? Amen? So thanks so much for coming.